Warning, this episode contains descriptions of slavery and racist language. Louis Agassiz, who lived from 1807 to 1873, was one of the most prominent scientists of his time. He popularized the revolutionary idea of ice ages on Earth after studying glacier movements in his native home of Switzerland. However, Agassiz was also an early proponent of polygenism, or the belief that different races were completely different species, and thus one race was inferior to another. In an essay published in the Christian Examiner in 1850, outlining his belief in polygenism, Agassiz wrote, quote, Whether the different races have been from the beginning what they are now, or have been successfully modified to their present condition, so much is plain. That there are upon earth different races of men, inhabiting different parts of its surface, which have different physical characters. And this fact presses upon us the obligation to settle the relative rank among these races, the relative value of the characters peculiar to each. It will not do to assume their equality and identity. It will not do to grant it, even if it were not questioned, so long as actual differences are observed. In this episode, we'll explore the implications of Agassiz's theories, as well as his ties to Harvard and scientific racism. From the Harvard Crimson, this is A Legacy Revealed. Today we have with us Saima Iqbal, an associate editor for the Crimson's 15 Minutes magazine. Saima published a piece earlier this year called Louis Agassiz Under a Microscope in which she examined the legacy that Agassiz left behind. Thank you so much for joining us, Saima. So, Louis Agassiz was a Swiss scientist whose legacy today includes promoting the ideas of polygenism. But that wasn't always what he worked on, right? Right. So, um, so before he got to Harvard, he was a professor of natural history um, in Switzerland. That's where he grew up. He was already kind of famous at the time because he was popularizing a theory that was really controversial, which was he was proposing this idea that there were ice ages, which, you know, wasn't in wasn't entirely a new concept, but no one else had really provided compelling evidence for it. And so he became famous um, internationally for it. He also studied under some of the like leading naturalists at the time in Europe. And so he already had a little bit of a reputation before he came to America. And then he ended up coming to America and becoming a Harvard professor in the first place because of an invitation to do some lectures um, in Boston. How does Agassiz go from studying Ice Ages to studying scientific racism and polygenism? How does he hear about this theory? Right. So when he lived in Europe, he never really concerned himself with the idea of polygenism. But when he came to America, he started to, like really the first in his first year, he started kind of being introduced to this concept and he started embracing it himself. So it largely happened because when he first came to Boston, he and when he was coming to do these lectures, he went on a scientific tour of the Northeast and he was trying to meet um, like influential scientists at the time. And he met this man named Samuel Morton, who at the time was basically collecting human skulls to study their size and shape and create um, a ranking of the different races. But you know, even more so than just creating racial hierarchy, he was trying to prove a theory that, I mean, he's trying to prove that 
the differences between the races were consistent over time and that that was evidence that the different races, which again, like are very oddly defined in his paper, were different species. So Agassiz met Morden and was like incredibly hooked on this idea. He found it really compelling. And part of the reason why was because it validated his own scientific vision of the world. Like he believed in creationism. He believed that God created the planet and he specifically believed that God had created creatures in centers of creation in specific numbers at specific times and that those creatures didn't change over time. Their population numbers never changed over time. And so, you know, because he thought the same way about animals, like it wasn't really a leap to think the same way about human beings. And why does it take Agassiz coming to the United States to become actively involved in theories of polygenism? I think part of the reason why he never really embraced polygenism in Europe, despite kind of having that belief system or that scientific belief system earlier, is just that it was highly controversial because in the Bible, uh, you know, the Bible says that all men are descendants of Adam and Eve. So to say that, you know, men of different races are different species is a little bit blasphemous um, and, and, and therefore very controversial. And it's not it wasn't something that he wanted to. He was a little bit reluctant to adopted, I think. But when he met Morden, he was really convinced by the the scientific rigor, the supposed scientific rigor of Morden's studies. But more so than that, when he was in Philadelphia uh, meeting Morden, like that was his first, he kind of had his first encounter with a Black person because all the servants at his hotel were Black. They were Black men. And he writes in a letter to his mother that like he had this very visceral reaction of disgust because he he kept fixating on how the men looked and how they were different from the white men he knew. And he felt that he was seeing a degraded and kind of pathetic race. So it, it in, a, in large part, like, like his embrace of polygenism also just comes from this like totally emotional, I guess, and viscerally racist place. I just think that he wasn't necessarily used to seeing people of different races and it was not very hard for like I guess given the ambient white supremacy to come to that conclusion I guess. Obviously today polygenism is entirely disproven and has been used as a way to justify racism. At the time was it also controversial because of its racist undertones? So I mean it was controversial at the time not because it was offensive but be, well, I mean, it was offensive, but not because of its racist undertones. It was offensive because of its religious implications, because it, it, it really was a shock for many Christians to hear that because the Bible dictated that, like, you know, men all belong to one race. That doesn't mean that all men are equal. But, um, you know, there was that existing kind of precedent in the Bible. And of course, there is there is also this narrative in the Bible that, like, Perhaps all Black people are descendants of Ham, who was cursed in the Bible, and that's why they are the way they are. But he was kind of making a more radical argument because it's less, okay, all men belong to one species, but perhaps some of them have different kind of, some of them have like more favor in the eyes of God. He literally argued that men belong to different species, and what was described in the Bible was just one act of creation on the part of God, and that was the creation of white people and the creation of every other race kind of occurred separately in those acts of like centers of creation. So his opinion was definitely more radical. Like, obviously, I think there were a lot of fringe 
people, scientists in the South and slave owners who um, embraced his views, but it's not entirely like everyone agreed with polygenism at the time. Like the dominant thought was actually the opposite. But I think the thing is that at the, like today, when we think of Louis Agassiz, we think about like the harm that he's caused people in propagating that idea. And we think about polygenism, but back then, the fact that he was doing that and it was controversial, it did hurt his reputation, but not enough to really hinder his success. How does Agassiz's support for polygenism progress? So even kind of from his very first lecture um, in the United States, he's kind of hinting at his support for polygenism. And as time goes on, he becomes a little bit more vocal about it. So first he says that there are differences, you know, in anatomy and in physiology between Black and white people and between, I mean, between other races as well, but he mostly concerned himself with like Black and white people. I guess the differences between uh, Black and white people. And then he, you know, starts, he gets he starts getting invited to give lectures in South Carolina where a group of naturalists are concerned with that same idea. They're really interested in this idea of polygenism in part because South Carolina was like a great slave owning state. And I think he kind of enjoyed the celebrity that he got from the folks in South Carolina. And every time he, the more time that he spent there, the more kind of deeply entrenched he became in polygenism he would tour. He actually like it was just a hobby of his to tour the plantations nearby and examine the enslaved people there to support his theory of polygenism. During one of these tours in South Carolina, Agassiz commissioned a local photographer, J.T. Zeely, to take daguerreotypes of seven enslaved people around 1850 in a mission to compile evidence for his theory that black people were inferior to white people. Among these seven individuals were Renty and Delia, the subject of the high-profile lawsuit Lanier v. Harvard, in which Tamara Lanier, who claims she is a descendant of Renty and Delia, is suing Harvard's Peabody Museum. She alleges that Harvard unjustly possesses the daguerreotypes because they were taken without Renty and Delia's consent, and that the university continues to profit from the daguerreotypes monetarily. How does he acquire the Zeely daguerreotypes? At some point, after one of his lectures, he was invited to visit the District of Columbia, uh, which is in South Carolina. And someone kind of said that they had a rare opportunity for him to examine an African, some several like African-born slaves. And this was kind of special for him, I guess, because, you know, in 1808, Congress had banned the further importation of enslaved people from Africa. So he kind of highly doubted he'd be able to study African-born slaves. And so, you know, because he really saw enslaved people as specimens, it was like a very exciting opportunity for him. And this is kind of what led to him acquiring the like daguerreotypes in the first place. So there was a local naturalist in South Carolina named Robert Gibbs. He was a physician as well, who basically invited Agassiz over to tour a couple of plantations in Columbia. And the thing that he was most curious about was studying the effects of environment on different types of bodies. So because he believed that there was like an African type of body, he thought that by looking at um, African-born slaves and African-American slaves, he could kind of examine how the temperate kind of U.S. climate had affected that type of body, especially because since he believed in this idea of like centers of creation, he was very curious about like, well, what would happen if you took an organism or a person outside of their center of creation? And so, of course, like, 
his the entire premise of the I guess the entire premise of this like little what he kind of deemed scientific study relies on theories of like black inferiority and relies on this idea that there are differences, fundamental differences, physiologically and phrenologically between black and white people. But also in particular, like, I guess he was like looking into that sub question of like seeing how the environment, what kind of effect the environment would have on people. And so he toured four plantations and he inspected several enslaved people before choosing seven that he wanted to have photographed. And he commissioned a local photographer whose name was Joseph T. Zeely to take daguerreotypes of these enslaved people. So at some point he returns to Harvard, but the enslaved people are brought to um, Zeely's studio. Like they're asked to strip there and, and kind of stand in front of the camera for long periods of time. And photos are taken of them from different angles. These photos are later sent to Agassiz and he, and, and, you know, I guess he cherishes them. And that's a little bit of the story of the daguerreotypes in the first place. But I also think it's important to kind of mention like who these enslaved people were, because in the Tamara Lanier lawsuit against Harvard, like that specifically refers to like two of the daguerreotypes because two of the enslaved people featured in them were her ancestors, but there were five others as well, you know, and there's not too much that's known about them, except there also was another in the same way that for Tamara Lanier, she, her, she has one of her ancestors, Renty, and another one, one of her ancestors was Renty's daughter, Delia. There was another like father-daughter pair within that five. There's, there, I think people know the first names of like the other enslaved people and they know what plantations they came from and they know their age, but they don't really know much else because not much else was really recorded about them. And that's certainly a shame. What does Agassiz do with the daguerreotypes? How were they received within the scientific community and within the general public? It obviously was a very painful process for enslaved people to endure that sort of objectification. And then the interesting thing is he doesn't do much with them. Like, and to some respects, it's a good thing that he didn't do much with the photos. But it's very curious that, like, you know, he's going through the effort to take these photos, but then doesn't do anything with them. Like, he shows them off to, soon after he gets them, he shows them off to this, like, Cambridge Scientific Committee meeting to scientists there. And I don't, it's unclear how they responded to it. Mostly the newspapers that reported on that event were highlighting um, the blasphemy of his beliefs. So you can kind of get a sense that most likely they didn't respond favorably. The interesting thing is, like, he doesn't really do much with the daguerreotypes afterwards. It's unclear if he had ever really showed them to anyone else. He didn't publish them. He didn't publish any papers based on them. He never conducted a formal study based on them, which to some extent is characteristic because he spent most of his time propagating the theory of polygenism, but he was never out there, I guess, looking to collect evidence. He kind of let his colleague... In public, well, he kind of let Samuel Morton do that. And so in some respects, like him deciding to like obtain the daguerreotypes was like an odd thing in the first place. And there's like, there are a couple of theories for why he didn't do much with them. One, of course, is that perhaps they didn't show him what he wanted to see. You know, like he obviously thought that they were clear cut evidences of black inferiority and of like, these, these kind of profound differences between the races and even between people who were 
African and African-American. And it's possible that honestly, the photos didn't really prove anything, you know, like he was kind of projecting his own meaning onto them. And of course, that's not to say, but that's not to say that the photos aren't important because obviously I think it's clear from the linear lawsuit as well as that like, you know, he inflicted harm on the enslaved people that he had photographed as well as their descendants. Otherwise she wouldn't be filing a lawsuit, you know, otherwise it wouldn't matter that much. So ultimately, what impact did the daguerreotypes in Agassiz have on propagating these theories of polygenism and scientific racism? Ultimately, like when you think about the role of the daguerreotypes in the success of like polygenism as a theory, like it's unclear, you know, like polygenism, to some extent, I think Agassiz really lent his scientific authority to polygenism and polygenism and embracing polygenism also kind of gave him a sort of authority or celebrity, especially amongst certain scientists in the South and, and amongst certain slave owners and amongst people who thought that he was a like independent thinker because he was rejecting uh, biblical doctrine, despite being a pious man himself. But ultimately, like polygenism as a theory, it gained some momentum because of Agassiz. But after his death, it kind of faded away again. And the reason why is because, you know, in like 1859, like a couple of years before um, Agassiz died, you know, Darwin comes up with his theory of evolution. And in the year, in like the decade to come, most scientists are embracing evolution and evolution, the theory of evolution was just fundamentally incompatible with polygenism. And that was fine because, you know, you can embrace evolution and still be racist. You could embrace this idea that all men come from the same species and still be racist because you could argue, as people did, that there were fundamental differences between the races due to environment, due to long-time exposure to different climates and different cultures. And so it's interesting because like during his lifetime in like promoting polygenism, he obviously gave a lot of fuel to people who wanted to advance and continue the practice of slavery but then after his death after his life like after he died you know polygenism kind of faded as an idea and some of its kind of racist messages just got sublimated into other other theories there's still i mean an argument to be made that like he definitely had an impact in the sense that like he was one of america's first scientific racists both he and morden were and you know the scientific racists to come were a lot more uh, I guess, convincing or successful in convincing the public. The other weird kind of strange thing is that Agassiz actually considered himself like an opponent of slavery, and he considered his science to be completely dispassionate and objective, which of course it was not, and which of course it could not be, given that he was kind of attempting to look at human beings as scientific specimens. But he he considered himself an opponent of slavery, but then the, you know, his most fervent supporters were using his theory of polygenism in favor of like, you know, defending slavery, at least for the period that he was alive. How did having a platform at Harvard allow Agassiz to spread his message of polygenism? I think before he came to Harvard, he certainly was a well-known scientist, but I think Coming to Harvard, he 
he just had a lot more access to the Boston elite in terms of like funding. So he was always running out of money for his scientific projects. But because he was a Harvard professor and because he kind of acquaintance himself with a bunch of like the Boston Brahmin, he could get funding for his projects. Most of these projects actually had nothing to do with polygenism. They did enhance his reputation to some extent. You know, I think his social clout and his social network obviously expanded because he was at Harvard and also because he married into a very wealthy and very elite family. If he hadn't come to America in the first place, he, he may not have embraced polygenism. And if he wasn't a Harvard professor, he may not have propagated it to the extent that he did. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to tell because, I mean, I think certainly being a Harvard professor helped him as a scientist, like in terms of like having the money to start his museum and having like the money to go on all these adventures. In terms of direct impact, I think to some extent, obviously being a Harvard professor kind of increases one's renown or prestige. But I think there also is that question of like, if he had landed in America, but not become a Harvard professor, could he... I don't know. I mean, he was kind of an ambitious and self-aggrandizing guy. So there's like a part of me that feels like no matter where he would have ended up, he would have ended up at a kind of elite institution where he could have gotten a lot of eyeballs on his work and on him as a uh, person. A spokesperson for the university declined to comment on the record. To this day, Harvard's campus has several buildings bearing the Agassiz name. These include the Agassiz House where the admissions office resides. It's kind of wild when you think about the fact that like, he just didn't believe in the potential of a mixed society. And his name is all over Harvard's campus. And like his, there's so many signs of him everywhere and you might not think much of it. And they're all over a campus that is, you know, relatively racially diverse. So I, I don't know, like sometimes it just hits me where I'm like, he he never would have wanted, he never would have wanted that. Like, I don't know, like he, he never would have wanted society to be mixed or integrated or however you kind of phrase it. This podcast is hosted by Raquel Coronel Uribe and 6U. Content edited by Emma Schumer. Produced and edited by Zeng Gi. Theme music by Dash Chen. Cover art by Madison Shirazi. Thank you to Saima Iqbal for joining us for this episode.